I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the dire human rights situation in Ukraine following the invasion and the ongoing invasion by Russia, we have with us here today Marty Flax, who's a senior fellow and director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic International Studies. She's also our Kasravi chair. Errol Yeboke is also with us, my colleague at CSIS, who's part of our international security program. Errol is director of the Project on Fragility and Mobility at CSIS. Welcome to the podcast, both of you all. Let me ask you this just to start out. How serious is the threat of a refugee crisis from this Ukraine currently? I mean, we know that there's a million refugees already. How much worse is it going to get, Errol? Do you want to take a crack at this first or... Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth putting this in context first, where I don't know if you remember, Andrew, back in 2015, there was a so-called migrant crisis or migration crisis to Europe. There were about 1.3 million asylum seekers and refugees that came to Europe in all of 2015. We've been basically Russia invaded a week ago, and there's been over a million Ukrainians that have been forced from home and forced to leave Ukraine. Over half of those people have gone into Poland, although you know hundreds of thousands have gone to other neighboring countries, Hungary, Slovakia, etc., Moldova. And it doesn't show any sign of abating. It's almost like I check the UNHCR numbers and five minutes later, it's different and it's greater. And every morning I wake up and there's a new big number. So the I think the conservative estimate is around 4 million people is what people are expecting the refugee crisis to be. I think that's a floor, not a ceiling. And I think that the preparations are probably being made for quite a bit more. Marty, I want to ask you to weigh in. You know, this is really getting very scary in Ukraine. And I was talking to our colleague, Caitlin Welsh, who directs our food security program earlier today. She was telling me, you know, that Ukrainians are already running out of food. From a humanitarian standpoint, you know, you wrote about civil abuses and infrastructure damages in Ukraine by Russian forces. What, what do you think all this amounts to here in your world? Well, Andrew, I think we're looking at a very, very serious situation for those who do not or cannot leave Ukraine, particularly cities that are under direct threat in the coming days and weeks in the eastern half of Ukraine. Already, we've seen significant damage to civilian infrastructure in the early days of this campaign. We've seen schools and hospitals and apartment buildings and preschools and shopping centers hit by artillery or by missiles. And we're seeing that bombing campaign really ramp up in the last few days. And I expect in the coming days, it will become even more intense if history is any indication of the Russian campaigns in Chechnya or Georgia or their activities in Syria. We're going to see very significant wide-scale aerial attacks that is going to impact civilian infrastructure and civilians. And so to me, that means two things. One is the potential for widespread damage to critical infrastructure, things like electricity, water, food, you know, the things that people need to just stay alive and stay healthy. But the other concern is the attacks that could be directly targeting civilians or at least sort of indiscriminately 
and disproportionately hitting civilian targets, which may constitute war crimes. And there's certainly a history of um, Russian commission of those kinds of crimes in the context of conflict. I talked about the aerial campaign, but if and when Russian ground forces move in and start to actually engage in cities, there's an even greater potential for a lot of civilian casualties and a lot of potential targeting or, or indiscriminate killing of civilians. So we're looking at a very, very serious and dangerous situation for the individuals who do remain in Ukraine in the coming weeks. So, Marty, in addition to being you know, a subject matter expert in this space, you're also an attorney by training. What are the legal ramifications, if any, that will be meaningful? Is Russia going to be accountable for all of this once it's over or as it's going on? It's a great question and a complicated one. So there's two parallel dynamics that are happening in terms of what Russia could be held accountable for. One is what I just spoke about, which is the the actual crimes that may be committed in the coming days and weeks in Ukraine. Those are international crimes like war crimes and crimes against humanity for which our system has developed individual accountability. So we have set up an international criminal court that can try individual political leaders, military leaders for those types of crimes if they have jurisdiction. Neither Russia nor Ukraine are a party to the treaty that established that court. So it doesn't have automatic jurisdiction. And most the other way that cases get to that court are referral from the Security Council, which obviously in this case is not going to happen because Russia has a veto at the Security Council. However, after the Russians invaded Crimea in 2014, the Ukrainians actually gave the ICC jurisdiction over Russian actions in their country. And so as a result, the ICC prosecutor is able to launch a case investigating war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by the Russians. And so we will expect to see that investigation proceed. Um, however, the likelihood of any individual Russian leader ending up actually at trial in The Hague is, is relatively small, practically speaking. Their ability to secure a defendant for trial is going to be very challenging. And so for that reason, we have to think about accountability a little more broadly, and we have to think about things like financial accountability and reputational harm that we can impose on these people to really make it clear that their actions are unacceptable. One other point I would just make quickly is the other side of accountability is for the invasion itself, right? We've built an international legal order that says that the taking of territory by force is not allowed under international law. And there are mechanisms to enforce that as well. We have an international court of justice where states go to resolve disputes between themselves over international law principles. And there is a chance that, you know, the, the Ukrainian case against Russia could result in a judgment against Russia that this invasion is illegal, which is not going to stop the invasion, but is symbolically important to deter other states that might take this as a signal that it's now okay to invade countries and take countries by force. So it's important to maintain that principle in our international legal system, even if it doesn't impact the conflict day to day. One more question along these lines. Is the United States and our allies, are we doing enough right now on this front with legal action? I think we're doing some of what we can. A lot of our allies who are members of the ICC, for example, have referred the case to that court, which is a way of speeding up the ability of the prosecutor to investigate. So that's very helpful. 
We have actually seen in the United States, um, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a resolution in support of the ICC case against Russia, which is quite extraordinary. So we're seeing some bipartisan support for international legal accountability in the U.S., again, symbolically very significant given past positions in the U.S. on the ICC. So we're taking some of the right symbolic steps. I think that we, in the coming days and weeks, should pay attention to efforts to collect and help preserve evidence of crimes as they're committed. You know, Ukrainians, so long as they have access to electricity and internet, are going to continue to upload tremendous amounts of data to, to Twitter, to Facebook, to TikTok about what's happening. And all of that information is fodder for eventual criminal investigations. And so us and our partners helping to create a digital archive for that information to make sure that it can be accessed months from now and years from now to build that story of what happened, I think could be very valuable and really important. Thank you, Marty. Errol, you know, thus far, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Moldova have all taken in Ukrainian refugees. As this war continues, where else do you think the refugees will go? You, you mentioned before, it's a million now, it's changing by the minute, could be up to 4 million. Where else is everybody going to go? Well, it's worth pointing out that we actually... so. Refugees is not the total number of Ukrainians that have been forced from home. There is an unknown number that could be as high, if not higher, than the one million figure that have been forced from home and just haven't made it out of the country yet, internally displaced people. And I worry, quite frankly, more about those people because they won't have the international protections afforded to them under international law. Marty talked about a bunch of international criminal law. There's a whole bunch of international refugee law and that that says that if you're forced from home by conflict and you cross an international border, then you have access to the protections that a refugee has. So that's food, that's water, that's you know school for your kids and shelter and everything. But that's not afforded to people who haven't been able to, to get out. For those that have been able to get out, and, and again, those IDPs, those internally displaced people may eventually be able to leave because, and they the neighboring countries should be applauded for this, borders are open and Ukrainians are able to leave. And so I expect more people to continue getting on trains, heading west, finding sanctuary wherever they can outside of, of Ukraine. I think for right now, those states that you mentioned that are bordering are going to certainly bear the brunt of the refugees. I've already heard stories of there's lots of Ukrainians in the UK. And, you know, once people are able to get to a place like Poland, onward journey to a place like UK is certainly something that people are thinking about that authorities are helping facilitate. And then the last thing I'll say is the European Union so far has said that there will be freedom of movement for Ukrainians, Ukrainian refugees within the European Union. So the states that you mentioned are all European Union states with the exception of Moldova. And so they should be able to move onward to, you know, Czechia or Germany or France or someplace like that. So I expect those numbers to to go up as well in those states. But undoubtedly, every refugee crisis that I've ever studied in the world, the vast majority of people stay in the next country outside. So, you know, when you have a Congolese refugee crisis, they're in Uganda. When you have the Rohingya in Myanmar, they go to Bangladesh and, and the vast majority of them stay there. 
you know, up till now, we have not seen the Russians try and interfere with refugees fleeing from the cities and trying to leave Ukraine. We have seen that tactic in other conflicts that Russia has been involved in, in Georgia and in Chechnya, where refugee convoys and people fleeing have been targeted or at least hit by attacks. And so I think it's something to keep an eye on. Right now, those corridors are are relatively safe. And there was a discussion today, I know, between the Ukrainians and Russians about humanitarian corridors. But I think we need to keep a very close eye on the actions the Russians take that could interfere with the ability of people to leave freely and safely. Here's an idea that I have. How about we take all the oligarchs' apartments in Paris and London and give it to these refugees so they can live in these, you know, multi-million dollar mega mansions. How about that? I, I think it's a great idea. And it's yeah. it's a good time to shout out Airbnb, for example, has said that they're going to make 100,000 of their units available for Ukrainian refugees. That's amazing. We We often look to governments and multilaterals for solutions, and I think in in displacement crises like this, you could also look to private sector solutions. Well, good on Airbnb, and I hope other uh, services like that follow suit. Andrew, I think there's also you know some moves to make sure that as we are seizing these Russian assets, these Russian oligarchs' assets around the world, that the proceeds from those seizures go towards the humanitarian response in Ukraine so that it's or to eventually the reconstruction of Ukraine. So there's a tremendous amount of money being held in those, as you said, those mansions and those yachts and those airplanes that's really going to be needed eventually in Ukraine. It's already happening voluntarily. I happen to be a Chelsea fan and the owner of Chelsea uh, is a Russian oligarch, essentially. Abramovich. Abramovich. And he has voluntarily said that he's going to sell and that he's not going to take a dime of of the sales and he's going to actually put it in a fund that will, I don't know the details of this, but that will theoretically help Ukrainians. Well, good on him. I hope he follows through with that. I know he has been charitable in the past and in other spaces. I want to ask both of you this. I mean, this is just a, I'm sure you're hearing this from everybody in your life. Everybody I come across says to me, is the United States doing enough? Why aren't we doing more? Why aren't we doing it faster? What What's your take on this, you guys? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's several things on the humanitarian response and, and response to refugees and IDPs that we absolutely should be doing. The United Nations Refugee Agency has put out an appeal. That appeal should be fully funded. Every time that there is an appeal saying, we anticipate this many people are coming, this is where they're going, and this is what they need, those funds should be allocated. And and quite frankly, I think that they will be. And at the same time, we need to be making sure that we are providing all the support to the authorities in Poland and Slovakia and Moldova and all these other places. Because another thing that we know from refugee crises is that that welcome mat gets put out at the very beginning of these crises. But when the cameras move on, the going gets tough for those refugees. And we need to make it so clear that we are there to help them, to support them, not just the refugees, but also the host communities and make sure that the sort of flip side of that is that those borders stay open and they stay open to all people, regardless of race and sexual orientation and national identity. And, you know, those are the types of things that we I think we need to be focusing on from the humanitarian side right now. 
Yeah, I think on the human rights side, you know, the the best way to avoid further abuses is obviously end the conflict as soon as possible. And I think that the United States and its allies are doing a good job putting pressure on Russia at a much faster rate and larger scale than the Russians and many others anticipated without escalating the situation, without putting ourselves in a place where we may escalate the war by directly confronting the Russians militarily. So I think that there's a, there's a, a strategy that makes sense in terms of the U.S. response to, to the conflict. I think it's also really important that we continue to, to focus on the consensus among our partners, both on the specific response to Russia and how we're going to constrain their behavior or influence their behavior, but also on the principles that this conflict is violating. You know, often law is ironically sort of strongest and most reinforced when it's violated, right? We didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about this principle of sovereignty until Russia very brazenly intervened in Ukraine with, you know, absolutely no justification. And I think that that this is an opportunity to really strengthen the international consensus around some of those international law principles that we haven't spent a lot of time focusing on. And the same thing on the war crimes, crimes against humanity, you know, bringing not just our European allies along with us, but the entire global consensus the you know, 130 something countries that voted in favor of that UN General Assembly resolution yesterday to reaffirm the importance of the international order, I think is an important outcome of all of this. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a silver lining because I think this conflict is uh, going to get far worse before it gets better. But I think at least what we can get out of this horrible situation is a reaffirmation of just how far past the past acceptability all of these actions are. And in that way, sort of strengthen our international consensus on international law in the meantime. Let's hope so. Final question. How does this refugee crisis compare to other recent crises such as, you know, Afghanistan, Syria, Crimea even? So I'll start with the last one. The displacement crisis after the last Russian invasion, first of all, was ongoing. I mean, even when this latest invasion happened, there was still skirmishes and fighting and people being forced from home ebbed and flowed over the past eight years, but it was happening the the main difference is that that displacement was internal to Ukraine. It was people from Crimea going to Kiev, or it was people in the Donbass going across the line of contact to other places. Now, obviously, Ukrainians are not feeling safe, and and so they're they're leaving. As it compares, so it's not numbers wise comparing to Syria and Venezuela, and it's pretty similar to the Rohingya, both in terms of numbers and in speed. Some estimates put close to a million Rohingya were forced from home very, very quickly back in 2017, late 2017. But I think this crisis is notable for its speed. And I think that's for two reasons. One is that the devastation that Marty talked about that I fear is only getting worse as they become more indiscriminate in their bobbing campaigns. That has driven more people from home, and the fact that the borders, to the West at least, are open means that there is a place for people to go. A lot of times in displacement crises, there's not. There's, you know, people pool at the border and they're climbing fences and they're trying to get across. In this case, and again, let's applaud the the neighboring countries, those borders are remaining open, and so therefore, the numbers, I think, are higher, they're quicker. And, and there are structures in place to, to receive them. So 
I think this is a really devastating crisis, in particular for the Ukrainians, those that are left behind, the men age 18 to 60 who are not able to leave, and their families, you know, they're being forced to separate from. For now, those people seem to have some sort of support when they leave. Uh, and I think it's up to us just just make sure that that support is there for as long as they need it. Marty, last word. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the coming days and weeks are going to be very, very difficult. And we're going to see a lot of tragedy. And I think part of the challenge is to how do we kind of face that head on and continue to work this problem and not move on to the next thing. You know, this is this week is the six month anniversary of the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan. And look how quickly uh, that has sort of fallen from the headlines, despite an absolutely dire humanitarian and human rights situation in Afghanistan right now. I think the situation in Ukraine, I hope I'm wrong, but I fear that this is going to drag out for many, many months. And there's a risk that the world moves on to the next crisis and the next situation. Um, And so I hope that despite that, we find a way to continue to keep this in the headlines and continue to coordinate a really strong international response, both for the sake of the people of Ukraine, but also for the sake of kind of our broader human rights and humanitarian principles that we all believe in. Marty Flax, Errol Yebuke, I really appreciate it today coming on and sharing some of your time with us for Truth of the Matter. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 